Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel, Mercer County. Enjoy the message. We are in the book of Hosea, chapter 5. I, may I just say, I cannot believe next week is Easter. I, where is life going? Um, but that's cool. So next week is Easter. You probably want to arrive early um, because I imagine both our congregation, uh, you know, everyone that, that calls this their home, that maybe this week they're somewhere else, they'll, they'll make it a point to be here. And I imagine the congregation that meets in the back, same situation. Uh, so it should be, uh, should be a sweet time together. What, what are we studying this morning, did I say? Hosea, that's where we're at. Hosea chapter 5, I've stalled long enough. Uh, Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this group of believers. Father, 30 years ago when you began to stir in my heart to know the Lord, and you brought me to a fellowship, Lord, uh, outside of this community, you began to uh, work in my heart to be able to gather with a group of believers, like-minded in so many ways, and to be able to enjoy fellowship and meeting with you here in this community. And Father, here we are. And so Lord, we give you the honor and the glory that you're due. We come uh, to sit at your feet, to hear from you. Lord, we do know that our tendency is, we are, as the song says, we're prone to wander. And Lord, uh, we acknowledge this morning there's no better place for us to go uh, than to your feet to hear from you and to meet with you. And so challenge us where we need to be challenged, Lord. Comfort us where we need to be comforted. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Minister to our hearts as we need our hearts to be ministered to, we pray in Jesus' sweet name. Amen. Well, as I said, we're in Hosea chapter 5. Hosea 5... Uh, is actually a continuation of chapter 4. Chapter 4, 5, and the first three verses of chapter 6 all really go together. Uh, And ideally, that was my plan last week, let's just do a a marathon Bible study. We'll do this section together. But I begin to get looks from some of you when we enter the third hour of our studies. And so we decided to break it up into a few studies. But if you were with us last week, and if you weren't with us, let me remind you, there was sort of this word picture that I tried to develop. Well, I'm not reminding you, I'm telling you. If you were with us, I'm reminding you. But there was this word picture that I tried to develop of where the Lord enters into a courtroom of sorts, and he begins to present his case against the nation of Israel. As a matter of fact, in one of our verses, chapter 4, verse 1, glance over at that, It says there, at least in the ESV version, it says, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of Israel. And your version might be slightly different, but the word controversy in the original was a legal term. What the Lord is saying there is, I have this charge against you. In our legal terms, we might say the Lord brought an indictment against the people of Israel. And then chapter 4 continues on in that particular path. And he says that they have abandoned truth. Now, the way that's worded in the ESV in that verse is that there's no faithfulness. And that's, they're not faithful to truth. They've abandoned it. They, there is no steadfast love. That, that means there's no mercy in the land. And then the biggest of all the accusations the Lord brings against them, he says, there's no knowledge of God in the land. Now, we we might hear that. We might, well, I guess that's just the way it is. No, remember, these are the people of Israel. 
There should have been a knowledge of God in the land because the Lord had made himself known to the people of Israel, but they weren't interested in knowing the Lord. And all of that is part of the indictment that the Lord brings against them. We might look at it, and and chapter 4 goes on, and it says there's lying in the land, there's stealing in the land, there's adultery in the land, and all of these outward things. And we might look at it and say, that's his indictment. You're committing adultery. I can't believe it. You're lying. I can't believe it. You're murdering people. I can't believe it. But his indictment is that there is no knowledge of the Lord in the land. And the result of that is they're lying and stealing and murdering and committing adultery uh, with others. They had drifted from the Lord. You might even say they had walked away from the Lord. Now, the people, though, were still religious, and they still did their religious practices, and they still went to church, and they still went to temple, and they still went to the priest, and they still brought their sacrifices and things like that. And it's as if they show up at temple or wherever, the synagogue, wherever it is, they showed up where the priests were, and they said, hey, could you say like a little prayer for me? You know, I had a rough wig, I did something. You think you could do that little sacrifice thing to take away my sin? And the Lord says, look, you go and you bring your sacrifices to the priest. I'm not interested in the sacrifice that the priests are bringing to me. And he goes on, he explains why in the chapter. And he says there, because the priests themselves are corrupt. And so you think just some little prayer is going to do something. No. And you think some little prayer from some corrupt people themselves is going to do something. Certainly not. This is the charge that I have against you, the Lord will go on to say. You remember I mentioned last week that the priests were actually profiting off of the people's sin. I think I used the phrase they were kind of rooting for the people to sin. Because every time the people sinned, they brought their offering to the priest, a portion of which the priest could keep for themselves and take home to share with their family. It was sort of like their salary. And so there were many priests, it seems, that were rooting for the people to keep on sinning so that more things, more gifts and and sacrifices could come to them. Well, that brings us now to chapter 5. These are the charges against him. And chapter 5, we'll notice, continue. Look at verse uh, 1. It says, hear this, O priest. Look, go go back to chapter 4, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. Hear. And I liken that again to, you know, the the town crier who stands in, in the center of the city and says, hear ye, hear ye, in the old days. And everybody, what are we listening to? What's the news? And and they would come and they would listen. And so the Lord now, he is continuing this court case. And he says, hear this, O priest. Let me read it to you, starting in verse 1. He says, hear this, O priest. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king. For the judgment is for you. For you have been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread upon Tabor. And the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to the Lord. For the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah and herds, they shall go to seek... I'm sorry, Judah also shall stumble with them, with their flocks and herds. They shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. And chapter 5, verses 1 through 14, it's going to present sort of this broad sweep 
of coming judgment. It's prophetic in nature. It's future from Hosea's day, and it continues to be future even from our particular day. So it's this broad sweep of prophetic, uh, of prophecy regarding coming judgment. And sometimes the focus of the judgment is the southern kingdom, which we call Judah, and you see that there. Other times it's the northern kingdom, which we refer to as Israel. And sometimes in the conversation in the chapter, it's referring to both of those kingdoms. And so you just have to kind of read and say, who is this directed toward based on each portion of the chapter? And aspects of this coming judgment that are spoken of in chapter 5, aspects of that were fulfilled in the Assyrian captivity, which we've talked about a number of times, where the northern kingdom went into captivity. That's in about the 700s. Aspects of it, of this prophecy, are fulfilled in the Babylonian captivity, which primarily took care of the southern tribes in the 500s. And aspects of this, I would suggest to you, uh, were fulfilled by the Romans in the first century, in the years immediately following uh, our, our Lord's time here upon the earth. And then there are still some aspects of this prophecy that have yet to be fulfilled. And so the Lord now, he'll switch from presenting sort of this indictment against them to here's my decision. And so the, the Lord kind of transitions from being the prosecuting attorney to the judge. And he says, hear ye, O priest and kings and all the others that are listed there. Here's my ruling. Here's my decision. Captivity by the Assyrians, captivity by the Babylonians, destruction of your land by the Romans, and even to us future consequences that will come their way. He says, here's what we're going to do. So breaking it down, break it down, as they say, as the children say these days. He says, hear this, O priest, pay attention, O house of Israel, give ear, O house of the king, for judgment is for you, and you've been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread upon Tabor. Now, he addresses the priest, but he also calls all the people and the king, he says, to pay attention to you. None of the nation of Israel is going to be spared that which is coming upon them. So he says, priest, listen up. Kings, listen up. People, listen up. Judgment is for you. And again, earlier, the priest, people were going to the priest to perhaps they could say a little prayer for them. He begins here, he says, no, they themselves are going to be judged. And the reason why each of these groups are going to be judged is because they have been a snare to the people. You see that there in the verse, a snare at Mizpah and a net spread at Tabor. Now, that, there are cities in ancient Israel. Mizpah, the name means watchtower. Tabor, it means a lofty place. Both of those locations were essentially hunting grounds for the children of Israel. They were higher elevated places that gave them a view of the, the lower area that was in front of them. And the children of Israel would go to those places. They would gather there. They would hunt there. And so those places would become a snare to the animals or what have you that they, I guess it was animals that they were hunting. He says here, those places have ensnared you. You've gone to those particular places. You've gone to your false religions. You've gone to your false practices and you've been ensnared by them. And they're going to lead to judgment upon you, ultimately to your destruction. And the priests were complicit in that. He goes on, he says, and the revolters, that's those who have rebelled, They've gone deep into slaughter, but I'm going to discipline all of them. We might say it this way, wow, they're knee-deep in it. 
They went, they've gone deep into their slaughter, into their sacrifices for their various religions, but he's going to be disciplined for that. Verse three, he goes on, he says, I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you've played the whore, Israel is defiled. Now, again, remember Ephraim was at this time the largest of the northern tribes. Ten tribes made up the northern kingdom. Ephraim was the largest of it. And so many times Israel is simply called Ephraim. And so he says that, look, I know Ephraim. And Israel, look, you're not hidden from me. You've played the whore. I've seen it. And he goes on, he says, Israel is defiled. Now remember the context of things. Chapter 4, which I introduced this morning again, or reintroduced, it says that they had no knowledge of the Lord. They should have but they had forgotten the Lord. Notice what it says here, but I know Ephraim and I know Israel. They may have forgotten me, but I haven't forgotten them. They thought they could hide themselves from me, but they could not be hidden from me. And the Lord was keenly aware of their unfaithfulness, those things they were doing that would defile them. And he says here, he would discipline them. He was determined to discipline them. And we've talked about it every chapter so far. Why? Because he was sick of them. He's going to give it to them. They're going to get what they deserve. If that's your understanding of the Lord, you do not have a right understanding of God's grace. Okay? And I hope you will. And that's part of what we do here. The Lord would bring discipline so that they would repent. The Lord doesn't bring discipline to get even with them. The Lord doesn't bring discipline in your life to get even with you. He brings discipline in each one of our lives so that we will turn and get right with him because being right with him is what you were created for. That's what he desires for each one of us, that we, we would be in a right place with him. And because of the hardness of their hearts, they wouldn't turn to his gentle instruction and his gentle correction and his a little, little bit more uh, severe correction. And so he ends finally and he brings strong discipline. Look at verse four. He says, their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of Horden is within them, and they know not the Lord. They've just given themselves over to sin, and it's so incredibly hard for them to turn. They just can't bring themselves to the place of repentance. I'm sure in your life you've been there. Maybe, hopefully not with sin, but let's just use this one. This is common for us as Americans. Our diets we all, right? Amen? We all know what we should be eating, but we've gotten so used to this food and that food and this thing and that thing at this time of night, that's when you go up to the freezer and the bowl of ice cream comes out, you know, and your wife buys those Jimmy things, those sprinkles, and it's her fault or whatever, but you're, you're just so ingrained in that habit, you know what you should do, but you don't do it, and you just go right back to it. Maybe you do it for a day, so these fellows here, their deeds do not permit them to return because they're just having too much fun in their sin. Why would we ever want to give that up? We like it. They have not yet come to the place where their sin has broken them. I remember the Lord in his grace broke me for the first time over my sin. I was about 18 years old. I had been a Christian for about a year. And I knew what sin was. And I knew, yeah, you got to stay away from that. Oh, man, I can't believe I did that, you know, kind of thing. But then there was an instance where the Lord broke me. And now I never wanted sin again. I, I sin, of course, but I never wanted it again. And there was a complete change within my heart in that instance. That was the Lord's grace. These individuals have not yet been broken 
of their sin. They, they've not yet realized that no amount of pleasure is worth the pain that the separation from the Lord brings because of sin. And so in their pride, it says in the next verse, they refused to repent. And he says there, that very pride is going to testify against them. As if, the, the, as if pride becomes personified, comes into the courtroom and said, I know why you didn't repent. You know, pride points the finger. The pride of Israel, it says, testifies to the Lord's face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. Their pride will bring about their stumbling. That's the opposite in so many ways of pride. And ultimately, it's going to lead to their fall. And notice as the verse goes on there, not just the fall of Israel, but the fall of Judah as well. Verse 2 says that, and Judah also shall stumble with them. Judah also shall stumble with them. Now, in the previous chapter, chapter 4, verse 15, I've got to remember you don't have slides this morning. And so look at chapter 4, verse 15. There, in that chapter, it says, Though you play the, har- the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Remember, that was a warning to Judah. Don't go the way of your brothers and sisters of the north. Don't because it'll, it'll bring consequences if you do. Here now, in chapter 5, verse 2, it says, and Judah also shall stumble with them. They had been warned, but they did not listen. They had been warned that this is what's going to happen to your, your brother in the north, the Israelites, the, uh, the, those from the kingdom of Israel, and they'd been warned about it, but they would not listen. And so they dabbled with sin. They played around with it. I'm in control. I'll be all right. I'll just watch that program a little bit, but I'm not going to go act on anything that I see in it. I'll be okay. And they dabbled with sin, and sin, just like the Israelites, it ensnared them. It caught them in its loop, it tripped them up, and then it pounced on them. And now they were feeling the consequences for it. And I think it's just such an important lesson for us. Because more, I suspect most of us in this room, almost all of us, are doing pretty well, at least this morning, spiritually. All right, we're here. We're not somewhere else, and so we're having a good day. We're in a good place with the Lord. And maybe some of us are in a good place in our walks with the Lord in general. Take heed. Be on your guard. Because you, Judah was in a good place at one point in time. And the question is, will you remain in that good place. Will you allow yourself to get complacent as Judah did? Will you allow yourself to drift? Will you begin to get a little too close to the edge of that sin and just sort of see it and look at it and then slip off of the edge as Judah did? Will you begin to play with sin? So I'm speaking to those of us that are doing pretty well today. Will you begin to play with sin? And give yourself over to sin. That's what Judah did. And the result for Judah is now that they too must be disciplined. So that they'll come to the place where they're no longer having this affinity for that sin. They didn't heed the Lord's warning. And now they're going to experience the consequences for not having done so. And again, that's God's grace. And so both Israel and Judah are going to be judged. Look at verse 6. It says, with their flocks and herds they shall go to seek the Lord but they will not find him for he has withdrawn himself from them. Now those flocks and herds were for sacrifices. And so they're still coming 
to church. They're still coming to the place of sacrifice. We're going to go and we're going to seek the Lord, he says. But they came out to seek the Lord, but by virtue of the fact that they didn't find the Lord when doing so, we can rightly conclude that they weren't truly seeking the Lord. Because the scripture says, if you seek me with all of your heart, you'll find me. And so they went out seeking, but they didn't find and so truly their heart wasn't seeking the Lord. They were just going through the motions here. Jesus would point out in the New Testament, this is from Matthew chapter 15. He said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain do they worship me. The Lord is profoundly interested in our hearts. Not in our words, not so much even in our actions, but in our hearts. Because we can fake things, we can do a bunch of religious things, and our hearts can continue to be very far from the Lord. And that's what's going on here with Israel. They bring their offerings, they bring their, their herds, their flocks, they offer their various offerings, but they're not truly seeking the Lord. And the Lord knows that, and he knows what is happening, and he's not fooled by it at all. Again, the scripture says, this is Jeremiah 29, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And as long as these folks here continue to cherish sin in their hearts and continue to secretly long for sin, they were never truly going to find the Lord. It's the exact same thing for you and I. As long as we cherish a certain sin within our hearts, and I want that particular thing, and secretly we're longing for that particular thing, we're never truly going to find the Lord. We might know a whole lot about him, but we're never truly going to find him. We need, as people, we need to repent of our sin. Not, not that we're going to be perfect, but we need to repent. And that repentance is a determination that I don't want this anymore. And again, not that you're going to be perfect from that day on, but it's this acknowledgement, I'm done with this. It's not worth giving up my relationship with the Lord for this. And our hearts and perhaps even our lips finally will declare, Lord, I want you. I want you more than this thing. And I want nothing to come between you and me. That's true repentance. Now notice that despite their sin, which elsewhere is called an abomination, notice though the Jews are still participating in their religious practices, still engaged in these things. And as the, the verse says there, they're, they're going to go seek the Lord, but they're not going to find him. They're doing their religious things, but it's not satisfying them. It's not meeting their heart. It's not at this point where they're like, that was good. The scripture says, taste and see that the Lord is good. They're getting to that particular place, and they're leaving unsatisfied, as it says there. And, I, and, and we know why. Why? What's it say? Verse 6, because the Lord has withdrawn from them. The Lord has withdrawn. And why is he withdrawn? so that they would come to the place they say, desperately cry out, Lord, I need you. Let's go on, verse seven. They've dealt faithlessly with the Lord and they've borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their, with their, uh, devour them with their fields. Again, because of their faithlessness toward the Lord, he removes his hands of protection. He says here that within, with the new moon, within a month's time, their fields will begin to be devoured. Now, I will tell you this. Maybe you're reading a different version than I am reading. Some of your versions will say within a month, whereas mine says the new moon. Some of your versions will say, and the locust 
will devour their field. Those are very different things, aren't they? New moon, month, okay, that's kind of similar, I get it. The idea of the locust there, and this has given scholars a little bit of difficulty and trouble. Um, that some of the reasons why uh, they conclude that the locust will devour the fields is because it's a biblical idea. The prophet Joel speaks of that in the opening chapter of his book. We'll get to it in a few um, books from now, uh, the prophet Joel. But chapter 1 reads this way. This is from chapter 1, verse 4. And the whole chapter talks about four different types of locusts that will come in and devour the fields of the Jewish people. I'll read to you verse 4. It says, Now with the, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. The fields of Israel would be destroyed as part of the judgment of the, kept, of the captivity in the surrounding nations. The, field, the, the area of Israel would just go barren during that particular uh, period of judgment. And so locusts fits for the Hosea passage. It's not some unbiblical idea. It fits there. But one way or another, the, the concept that is being communicated is that there is a nearness and a destructiveness upon the land uh, of God's coming judgment. It was coming upon the nation of Israel, and it was going to do so quickly. Ultimately, it would, be, it would happen through the Lord's servant. And who was the Lord's servant that brought judgment upon the people of Israel? Believe it or not, it was Assyria. One of the most barbaric empires that ever lived upon the earth, the Lord says, I'll use them to accomplish my purposes. And so Assyria will come in again, what year? 722-ish? Uh, just add ish at the end, that way you're in the ballpark, you can't really be wrong. And someone said, no, it was 870. Yeah, that's what I meant, ish. You know, and you're in the ballpark there. And so the Lord was going to bring judgment through the Assyrians within a very short time. Uh, Hosea prophesied over a period of about 50 years, uh, and his chapters aren't necessarily all in chronological order. Uh, and so toward the end of his ministry is when that judgment would come. Let me go on. I'm going to read verses 8 to 14. It says, Now blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm at beth Aven. We follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment. Among the tribes of Israel, I will make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them, I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim and like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. But he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. In our Wednesday night study, we were reading of the various horns that would be blown, trumpets that would be blown, and how they would be blown in different ways. It was a wonderful study. I'm sure most of you are thinking, I seriously doubt that. But it, it was really interesting, I thought. And there, they had two silver trumpets, and they would be tooted in different ways to determine if now it's time to come to sacrifice, now it's time to go to war, now it's time to come to a meeting, or whatever. Here we see, blow the horn in Gibeah. This is a war trumpet. 
The enemy peoples are coming and they're attacking. They're close at hand. You need to get yourself ready. He, he speaks there of Beth of En. We introduced them last week. That's not a real city in Israel. Bethel is the real city there in Israel. But Bethel means house of God. Beth of En means house of vanity. And it was sort of the play on this name because it, that was the place they had given themselves to worship and serve their golden calf. They made this golden idol and said, this is the God that delivered you from slavery. Worship it. And the people did. That's a house of vanity. That's a place of vain worship here. They mentioned Gibeah. They mentioned Ramah. Now, Bethel, Gibeah, and Ramah, they're all somewhat neighboring cities in the extreme southern portion of the northern kingdom. You got that? So the northern kingdom, recall, is the upper half of Israel. The southern kingdom is the lower half of Israel. These three cities are right there about midway through. Got it? We'd, we'd show it to you if we could, but we can't. And the idea there is this. The idea is that the enemy from the north is pushing the northern kingdom further and further down so that they're getting closer and closer uh, to the nation there, the kingdom of Judah. He references or he points out Ephraim, he says, shall become a desolation in the day of punishment. Shortly they would be. This was a day, the day of reckoning for the northern kingdom because in her sin she refused to repent. She determined, look at verse 11 there, it says she determined to go after her filth. It says there in one of the other, oh, I'm sorry, where it says determined to go after her filth, the King James Version, anybody have the King James Version? Old schools? This guy, he's just old. Um, no, I'm just kidding. He's not that old, but he does. It says something like they willingly walked after the command, it says. Determined to go after their filth, willingly walked after the command. Whose command? The king of the northern kingdom, Israel. Remember the first king of the northern kingdom is a guy by the name of Jeroboam. And when that nation split, when Israel split into the two kingdoms, the king of the north said, if they go down to worship in Jerusalem, they'll never come back, at least not in their hearts. And so he established an alternative place of worship and he commanded his subjects, this is where you go to worship. You go to Dan, you go to Bethel, whichever one is more convenient for you, but you don't go down to Jerusalem anymore. And the people willingly walked after the command because they were determined to go after their filth. That's found in 1 Kings chapter 12, if uh, you're inclined to go and look there. And here, now Hosea, in the book of Hosea, the nation is about to experience the consequences of willingly giving themselves to that command. And Judah's not far behind them. Verse 10, it says there that he will pour upon them, upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Now notice in verse 12, he says, but I'm like a moth to Ephraim. I'm a big, tough guy. Would you agree? Not really, to be honest with you. We, one time we had a mouse in our house, and my wife is like, get it. And I'm like, it'll go away, you know, kind of thing. Um, and so I'm, I'm literally standing on the couch, and my wife's like on the ground looking at me like embarrassed, like or whatever. And my friend Jeff comes over, Jeff Simpson, and he like uh, you, you entered the room I was in from the driveway. Um, so Jeff comes into the house and he's like, what are you doing on the couch? I said, there's a mouse in that corner. 
And he goes over and he like grabs it with his hand. And I'm thinking, you're like Superman. Like, what's the matter? There's diseases and stuff. What are you doing? Whatever. So I'm not a very tough fella. And birds flying where they shouldn't be freaked me out. Um, We had a bird in this facility when we were doing construction. There was probably like 10 of them. I don't know. But we would see one at a time. And we were, and Tom is chasing them around trying to catch them. And I'm like, I'm going to go to the cafe. I'm going to get some coffee when it's done. You let me know. Or whatever. But I'm freaked out. And Will's like, would you knock it off? Like, grow up. Be a man. Or whatever. So I, I am easily freaked out by little things uh, or whatever like that. Moths, no big deal, right? A fluttering moth by my head freaks me out. Or whatever, and it scares me quite honestly, and I, I run and all this stuff, kind of thing. So anyhow, that being said, notice he says I am like a moth to, to Ephraim. For most of us, moths are just like a minor irritant. Eh, get out of here, kind of thing, or move away from the light, shut the light off, and they'll go away. And they just sort of fly in, they dive bomb, they catch your attention, and then they move on. And and I I can't help but look at sort of the progress here. It seems as if to me. What the Lord is saying is, look, I came in like a moth. I was just sort of this minor irritant. I just tried to get your attention. I spoke into your heart. Why are you going down that particular path? It's only going to lead to destruction. And you ignored me. You ignored me. He says, I came in like a moth. But a moth left unattended can develop into something very destructive. And you know our closets, we have mothball things in there to prevent it, or our, our grandparents used to. I don't know what we do any longer here. I used to have a suit. It doesn't fit me anymore anyway. It was like when I was 20, but I'll get into it someday or whatever. And I, I was recently moving things around, and it had all these holes in it. Moths had gotten into it and eaten the thing. They can become destructive, and they can destroy clothing, carpeting, upholstery, bedding. I looked this up, by the way. More significantly, they can destroy vegetation. They can destroy entire trees. We have some trees in the Ewing community. There's this bug that is going around that is destroying a lot of the largest trees in the Ewing community. And we have a tree like that. They can destroy an entire tree. And so they're sweet. They're tiny. They're fluttering. Some of them are attractive. They got nice colors. But if left unattended, they can be destructive. And the Lord says, look, I'm like a moth to Ephraim. I tried to get your attention for years, and you wouldn't listen to me. And I think it's the same way in our lives as well. Initially, there's that conviction. God just sort of speaking. He's present. He's catching our attention. There's this inkling of, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? I shouldn't be doing this any longer. But we put the voice aside, don't we? And we hope that it'll go away. And you know what? Oftentimes it does. We get busy with other things and we we've successfully silenced that voice. And then it comes back again two months later. And it's a little stronger this time. I've had it in situations where I've actually become nauseous when his voice kind of spoke in. Look, I've been speaking to you about this for a year now. Are we going to deal with this or aren't we going to deal with this? And so the Lord, it's how he works. Now, if we don't respond to the moth... The Lord loves us too much to let us continue in sin. Look at verse uh, 14, it goes on in 14. He says, and so I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. 
Now, I imagine every one of us in this room are freaked out by lions. All right, the moths, some of you are tough, big, tough people, and you don't mind moths coming in or whatever. But every one of us, if it was a wild lion coming in, we'd be freaked out. And it's those times when we're trying to run from the Lord, telling ourselves, if I keep ignoring him, he'll ignore me. The reality is we can try and forget him all we want. He's not going to forget us. And he'll keep pursuing us. And he'll continually orchestrate circumstances so that we finally come to the place where we listen. I think the greatest gift that we could give ourselves, each of us individually and as a congregation to one another, is to be the sort of people that hear and heed. We hear and heed. And we don't have to be told 40 times by the Lord, but we hear and we heed the voice of the Lord when it's a fluttering moth instead of waiting until it's a tearing lion. The the verse continues. Look at verse 13. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria, the great king. Now, who's Ephraim again? That's the northern kingdom. And so the problems are starting to come to the northern kingdom, and who do they go to form an alliance with? They go to the enemy who's going to actually come and attack them. It says here, Ephraim went to Assyria. They sent to the great king, but he's not able to cure you or heal your wound. He says, I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion there to the house of Judah. Now, the context, you can read about it in your Bibles. It's found in 2 Kings chapter 16. It's almost the entire chapter, so we won't look at it. But in 2 Kings chapter 16, it speaks of how the northern kingdom aligned themselves with Assyria and then came and attacked the southern kingdom. The idea being, let's attack somebody else, and then we know we're not attacking me. And so they join up with Assyria, expecting that that'll bring them deliverance. And what does the Lord say in this prophecy? He says, they're not going to heal you. They're not going to be a cure for you. The very thing you think you're avoiding by going to your enemy and forming an alliance with them, those very people are going to come and they're going to destroy you as well, which is exactly what happened. Interesting to note, the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom. They never conquered the southern kingdom, even though the northern kingdom tried to make an alliance with them to conquer the southern kingdom. Ephraim was past the point of no return. Their sin had brought them certain judgment. That was the only thing now that was going to work. Some of you familiar with your earlier books in your Bible, you know that the children of Israel were promised the land that we call the promised land, the land of Israel. But the Lord also spoke to them and he said, it's not going to happen today. It's going to be down the road because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. You're familiar with that phrase? That iniquity wouldn't be complete for another 400 years. And then judgment would come. And here in the case of the northern kingdom, their iniquity was complete. There was not going to be any repentance. They were going to experience the consequences of their sin. And the Lord in his love was going to bring judgment. Now some hear that and they say, wait a minute. How can that be? How can you have love and judgment in the same sentence? Aren't they mutually exclusive ideas as either we love people or we judge people? They can't go together Love is the absence of judgment. Well, respectfully, I'll ask you, who told you that? Did you read that in your Bible? Because that's not what your Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't teach that love has to be uh, excluded from judgment. A person can be loved in the midst of judgment. And the Lord is going to bring judgment. 
on these people as a sign of his love. Let me use a different word than judgment, discipline. The Lord brings discipline as a mark of his love. And the scripture says that because he loves the child that is straying, he will discipline the child that is straying. We read this in Hebrews 12. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. The Lord chastises every son whom is his, whom he receives, it says there. And so, friends, if you're feeling the hand of the Lord on your life, not in the good way, not sort of in that comforting way of, I know the Lord is with me, but the heavy hand of the Lord, may I say, heed, hear and heed, listen, return, repent, respond before the judgment, the discipline has to become more severe because the Lord loves us and he wants what's best for us. Look at verse 14 here. He predicts there the coming captivity. As he says, I'll be like a lion to Ephraim and so on and so forth. He says, I will carry off and no one will rescue. That's the coming captivity. Assyria would come in and carry off and nobody was going to stop them. No alliance, no plan, no this, no that, no little fake practices at the temple. None of that was going to stop what the Lord was about to do. Verse 15, he says, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. This is the idea of the Lord withdrawing his presence from them. The Lord's saying in so many words, let me put it in in different words. He says, I'm going to pull back. I'm going to remove my hand of blessing from the Jewish people until they realize through life's difficulties just how good they had it when my hand of blessing was upon them. Now, an interesting thing begins happening in verse 15. And between verse 14 and verse 15, there are thousands, hundreds and thousands of years between those two verses. So verse 14 is speaking of the coming Assyrian captivity. Again, what year was that? Ish, all right, 722-ish, all right? So verse 14 speaks of that. Verse 15 speaks of the Lord withdrawing, and it says they're returning again to my place. I'm going to try and demonstrate to you that's 750 years later. And so here Hosea, in the space of 10 words, is looking at 750 years of history, 800 years of history. And I'll show you, I'll try to at least, even beyond that as well. He blends together hundreds of years of human history. Not unlike what the Lord did. You remember when the Lord, he, uh, he went into the, the synagogue there. He read that particular prophetic scripture, which talked about uh, sort of the coming day of the Lord. And he says, this day has been fulfilled in your hearing. I'm, I'm the Messiah. I'm here. The very next phrase in that speaks of a thousand years, two thousand years into the future. One little passage of scripture where 2,000 years of history is covered, and we have no idea necessarily until we begin to put all the pieces together. Well, that's what's happening here. So in verse 14, the Assyrian captivity, verse 15, he speaks of, it says, they're returning again to my place. Now let's do a little deduction. What is the Lord's place? What would you say? Quick answer. Heaven, his throne, right? Come on, that's an easy one I would suggest to you. Uh, Maybe I'm wrong, but I think that's like the quickest, immediate, uh, heaven? Yeah, you got it, yeah. Again, I'm so smart. All right, so the Lord's place is heaven. When did the Lord leave heaven? When he came to the earth as a baby, laid in a manger because there was no room in the inn. 
When did the Lord return to his place? At the ascension. Found in the book of Acts, chapter 1, it says, Now when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them, the disciples, in white robes. And those two men said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. He would return, as the verse said, to his place. The Lord had come to his own. The Lord had come to the Jewish people. The vast majority of Jesus' ministry, and I tried to be conservative by saying 95% of his ministry. I bet it's higher, closer to 99% of Jesus' ministry was to the Jewish people. Right? Occasionally, he'd run into a Gentile, and he'd be like, man, you got faith greater than the Jewish people do. All right? But almost exclusively, Jesus' ministry during his time here on the earth was to the Jewish people. How did those people respond? Almost overwhelmingly, they rejected him. It says in John chapter 1, he came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. And so when he ministered, Matthew 10 says this. He tells his disciples, go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The vast majority of his ministry to the Jewish people here. And the Jewish people, sadly, the vast majority of them rejected. Some received, but as a whole, the Jewish people rejected the ministry of Christ, Christ as their Messiah, even to the point of bringing him to the authorities of the land and seeking to have him killed. Little did they know they were actually accomplishing the Lord's purposes. And unwittingly, they were being used by the Lord to accomplish the very reason why Jesus had come. But that rejection of their Messiah, that was the singular national offense of the Jewish people. The singular national offense, that word that in my version is the word guilt, Other versions uh, like NIV and things use the word offense. In all instances, it's singular. It was the offense that occurred there. They rejected the Messiah. And that rejection opened the door for the gospel to go forward to the Gentiles. And Gentiles overwhelmingly have made up the Lord's church for the last 2,000 years. Now, what happens to the Jewish people? Well, within a generation of their rejection of their Messiah, they were destroyed by the Roman Empire and forced to flee for their lives around the world. That event is called the dispersion. The word that is commonly used in history is the diaspora. And the Jewish people were dispersed for the next, essentially, 2,000 years of history, only to begin returning to the land in the last century, in the 1950s uh, or 40s following... uh, World War II, as their homelands, everywhere they went, were destroyed, they said, well, if we're going to start over, maybe we could start over in Israel. A key aspect, I would suggest to you, in God's end time clock. But they had rejected the Messiah, and so God removed his hand of blessing. Now, this does not mean that the the no Jew over the last 2,000 years can come to know the Lord. Some of us in this room come from a Jewish background. We're Jews and yet we recognize Jesus is the Messiah. So this doesn't mean that no Jew can come to know the Lord. But as a whole, the Jewish people, they continue to reject Jesus as the Messiah. I'd like to recommend to your reading 
Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. Just kind of jot it down. I'm going to go back. I'm going to look at it later on. The Lord continues to have a plan for the Jewish people. But since the ascension of the Lord, if you will, he has withdrawn himself from the Jewish people as a whole. We're now in what we might call the church age. And that condition of the Lord pulling back will continue, look at verse 15, until they acknowledge their guilt and seek the Lord's face. Until they acknowledge their guilt and seek the Lord's face. Look how 15 goes on. And in their distress earnestly seek me. That word distress, maybe your version has the word affliction. That word affliction is oftentimes translated tribulation in our Bibles. And the tribulation is many times, with a capital T, is many times in our Bibles referred to as the time of Jacob's trouble, the great tribulation. And it says here, their guilt until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their affliction, in their tribulation, earnestly seek my face. There is a coming day when the Lord will use the last day's events of the tribulation to turn the hearts of the people of Israel back into himself. And when he returns, they will, they will be prepared to acknowledge him as their savior and as their Lord. But notice what the Lord did. First the moth, then the dry rot, then the judgment of the captivity came upon them. Then the final form was the divine withdrawal. And no doubt there were things all in between there as well. That withdrawal, however, will not be forever for the Jewish people. Because again, please don't ever forget this, that uh, his discipline is always for the purpose of drawing us back. It's always to bring us to the place where we acknowledge our guilt and we earnestly seek him. Will Israel do that someday? The scripture says that they will. It says it here in Hosea. It says it in the Romans passage. I suggested that you read. And there's two end time passages that are found for us that I'll read to you. Matthew 23, it says this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Who's saying that? Jesus. Who's he speaking to? The Jewish people. There's a coming day when they will acknowledge he is their Messiah. This is found in the book of Zechariah, another prophetic book, minor prophetic book. It says, and I will pour out on the house of David, that's the Jews, and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and they will weep bitterly over him, as one weeps bitterly over a firstborn. The Lord will accomplish his purpose, and the heart of his people, the Jewish people that we're studying here in Hosea, it will, they will be changed forever. They'll see who Jesus is, they'll realize the error of their ways uh, of having rejected him, rejected him even to the point of having him crucified on a cross, and there is a day coming when Israel as a nation, as a whole, if you will, Paul will say it in Romans, as all Israel will be saved, when they as a nation of people will recognize who Christ is, and they'll receive him as their savior. A day is coming. Let me continue just three more verses here in chapter six. He says, come, let us return to the Lord, 
For he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. And after two days he will revive us. And on the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out as sure as the dawn, he will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Now, the Lord has been the one speaking in chapter four and in chapter five. Now, someone is speaking about the Lord. And this is the Jewish leaders. And they're saying, come, let us return to him. He's torn us so that he could heal us. He struck us down so that he will bind us up. It says in that verse there, after two days, it says, he will revive us and on the third day, some of you know the scripture that says the day to the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. Some have taken this verse to speak to this idea that the church age will be like a couple of days to the Lord, 2,000 years, and that in that third day and in the beginning of that third, of that 2,001 year, that the Lord will show himself again to his people. Perhaps that is what this scripture says is speaking about. But it's only then, it's only when they recognize their sin and who Christ is that the Jewish people will experience physical, physical blessing in their land. Spiritual blessing, certainly. But even psychological and emotional blessing, they will be a healed people as the Lord pours out his grace upon them. They will be restored. Let me read this Romans 11 passage to you, part of it. It said, and so in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Back to the Hosea passage, verse 3 says that he will send forth his rains, like water rains to restore the earth. And God promises to restore his people. But first, they're going to have to go through some difficult times in the history of their their people and they experience those difficult times you study history you've seen it in the last 2,000 years I, I believe it's the prophet Ezekiel which some Jews have declared to be anti-semitic literature it's the prophet Ezekiel from their Bibles and it speaks about a coming day future which will be more destructive than even the Holocaust that we're familiar with in our history or somewhat recent history of what we've studied. The Jewish people are going to go through a difficult time, but they will return and they'll come to know the Lord. How much better that they just simply respond to that fluttering moth and it was an irritant and they dealt with it then. And guys, we're no different, are we? God wants to work in our lives in the same way. And he wants to minister to us and he doesn't want us to get bogged down in foolishness and sin. And so he speaks into our lives and so often we ignore him. Let's not ignore him any longer. Let's run hard after him. And to run hard after the Lord, Hebrew says we have to remove something. We have to remove every sin and weight which so easily ensnares us and entangles us and trips us up so that we may run our race and we may run it with perseverance. You're here today with a couple of hundred other people. Many of us, almost all of us, I hope, are committed to that. You have your support network here to run your race. Let's not let anything get in the way of that. Amen, friends? Let's be the church to one another. Father, we love you. We're so grateful for your word. We thank you that sometimes it's challenging and we need it.
And so we ask that you would speak, Lord, to our hearts. I pray for this body of believers. I pray for myself. Lord, you know how easy it is for me to deceive myself and think I'm doing great when you know the truth. And Lord, you know how easy it is for many of us in this room to do the same thing. And so open up our eyes to those things. Bless our fellowship, Lord. This is a gift. The church is a gift from you in our lives. And so let us take full advantage of that gift. Lord, depending on one another, bearing one another's burdens, being strengthened by one another for the race that is before us. We believe that's your will. Lord, bring it about, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like more information about the church, please visit ccmercer.com or come worship with us in Ewing, New Jersey on Sundays at 10 a.m.